Do you feel that in a time when we are more connected than ever, we are drifting away from real human connection, especially to ourselves? I do. Hi, I'm Leticia Latino, and I want to invite you to join me and my very inspiring guests in exploring ways to reconnect to your essence, to your definite purpose, to what makes you tick. Are you ready? Hello, hello, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of Pack to Basics, Reconnecting to the Essence of You. My guest today is Mark Hirschberg. He's the author of the Career Toolkit, Essential Skills for Success That No One Taught You. I love the title. From tracking criminals and terrorists on the dark web to creating marketplaces and new authentication systems, Mark has spent his career launching and developing new ventures at startups and Fortune 500s and in academia. He helped to start the Undergraduate Practice Opportunities Program, dubbed MIT's Success Accelerator, which teaches annually. He also helped create a platform used to teach finance at prominent business schools. He works with many nonprofits and at one point in his life was one of the top-ranked ballroom dancers in the country. Oh, I'm going to love to hear about that. Hello, Mark, and welcome to Back to Basics. Hi, thanks for having me on the show today. What a, what a diverse background you bring to the table. I love it. I'm sure this is going to be a fantastic conversation. So thanks for being here. And so let's go back to the origin story. Like, where are you from? And, uh, you know, I always love to listen about what was your upbringing like and what were you passionate about when you were a youngster, so to speak? I grew up in the suburbs of New York City and Chicago. And my parents, wonderful parents, they always stressed education. So learning was always a very big part of my life. And from an early age, I took to STEM. I was very into math and science and chess, and it was just an innate part of my personality, and my parents were good at encouraging that in me so I could develop my interest and skills in that area. Wow. They should have encouraged, by the way, as a sidetrack, a, a career in radio because you have a fantastic voice for this. <laughs> Thank you. I That might still be somewhere in my future is doing some type of radio or voiceover work. I'm telling you, I, this is something when you catch that and it's like, I could, and not, not, not for nothing, but you have that kind of voice that you say, yeah, the, he should be in radio. So STEM, which I love because I'm in telecom and so I'm, I'm, I'm passionate about that. So you kind of saw that clearly. Um, and then as you grew up, is that what you pursue a career in STEM? It's interesting because I went to MIT, obviously one of the top, if not the top STEM schools in the world. And there I got degrees in physics and electrical engineering, computer science. I did my graduate work in cryptography. That's a branch of computer science and mathematics dealing with secret codes. So very quant, very STEM. And when I graduated MIT, I started off as a software developer. This is back in the 90s. That made sense given what I studied. I knew early on, early in my career, I realized I wanted to become a CTO, a chief technology officer. But I quickly realized that to become a CTO, there were a number of skills I would need. It wasn't just about being the best engineer. I also needed to be a good leader, a good negotiator, learn how to build teams to communicate well. And no one ever taught me these skills. They're not in most undergraduate or high school programs. So I had to develop it in myself. And in doing so, I realized these skills are not just for 
they are for everyone, down to the most junior person in the company. So I began to train up others in my company. And while I was doing this, MIT had gotten similar feedback. MIT surveys the companies who hire our students, and they said, these are the skills we want to see, leadership, communication, team building, but we can't find them. Not just in your grads, not just in college grads in general, but for everyone, we can't find these skills and we want to see them. So MIT then wanted to put together this program, the Career Success Accelerator, it's referred to as, and create a program where we can instill these skills in our students. When I heard about this, I reached out, I said, I've been working on this, can I help? They said, yes, please. So I came, I shared what I'd been working on, and then they invited me to help teach the class, which I've been doing for the past 20 years. So I've had this dual career, my primary career going from software engineer through now CTO, but a side career teaching at MIT, teaching elsewhere, and now, of course, the book and the speaking on professional development. I love it. I think that definitely summarizes quite well what one is capable of doing, you know, if you want to, because I think a lot of people, and I've spoken about this on the on the podcast, is you marry to your career and then they think that's it. That's like, this is the path I chose. And this is why I got so excited about interviewing you. And, and then people don't entertain the possibility of having a side gig or a side career or a side activity that they enjoy very much and when they can add value. And one of the things that I love that you, you shared is that when you heard about the program, you reach out and ask, can I help? And I think a lot of people get stuck there. They don't know how to, you know, you hear, oh, he's an MIT professor. I would never be able to do that. And But you asked and you got it. I would say at least a third of the jobs I have had, I just created out of thin air. The jobs <laughs> themselves did not exist, but I heard about an opportunity. Now, in some cases, like at MIT, I wasn't looking for one. I just said, oh, you might need help and I'd be happy to help and all of a sudden this position got created. In fact, they weren't even looking for instructors for the program. It was only after helping them develop it that the guy running the program, Chris Resto said, he realized that the professors obviously are very competent, capable professors at MIT, but he realized that practitioners like myself would bring in a different perspective. And it wasn't until I was there that he thought maybe we should have people like myself come in and help co-teach. So it wasn't even in the plan. I didn't say, oh, please hire me. No one was even thinking about it. I've had other jobs where I just heard people were looking for something. Wasn't quite what I wanted, but I said, let's have a conversation. Made up those jobs as well. So taking initiative can open a lot of doors. I, I totally agree. And, and I'm a firm believer that, uh, that we co-create our reality. Like we are truly co-creators. And, uh, you know, I, I'm also a, ca a Catholic person and I believe that, yeah, we have a destiny, but it's, I don't believe it's like this is set in stone. I believe that there's so much we can achieve if we have that initiative, curiosity, and, and just drive to, to explore. I am a big believer that we make our own fates. And of course, if you believe in pure predetermination, well, then you might as well just sit back and wait for life to unfold. And it's probably not going to be all that great. But recognizing <laughs> that we can impact our future, we might not have total control, but we can impact our future 
means you need to actively drive towards the goals that you want. The analogy I use in the book is imagine if you're just floating in the ocean, there are ocean currents. And so you can either just go where the currents take you, which may or may not be where you want to wind up, or you can say, I want to get somewhere. And then you're going to actively row or sail or turn on your motor. And sometimes those currents will help you. Sometimes they're going to hinder you. But if you just give up and let the currents take you where you want to go, probably isn't going to happen. I, I, I totally agree. I always call it the I want to drive the bus and, and decide where I stop and where I go. But uh, that, that's a great point. And actually, we're going to be my next question. So I'm glad you brought it up. You wrote a book that obviously when I read the title and I did some research and I'll share, you know, with the audience, you know, your web page and where you, they can buy the book. But I thought like, hmm, this is, you know, I mentor young people all the time. And I say, this is a, like a great gift because you, you, you read the career toolkit and you say, when, at what time should one read this? You know, uh, what do you think is the ideal age for the, your book? The ideal age is probably just out of school. So maybe around mm -hmm. 22 to 26. That's the ideal age. Mm -hmm. Certainly, I use it when I teach college students and those who are juniors and seniors, grad students as well, get a lot out of this. But I've also had many people well into their 30s, 40s, even 50s say, wow, I wish I had learned this earlier because it's never too late to pick up these skills. It's never too late to get better at the skills or create a career plan. But certainly at the start of your career is the ideal time. I totally agree. I can see many people pivoting even now with COVID, you know, that you you have this opportunity that to rethink what you're doing. So I see that that's definitely anybody could read the book. But, you know, I ask you because my son, he's 11, but he already established he wants to go to MIT. We are still establishing if he's going to have the grades to make it, but in any case, uh, he's a good student. So I'm going to make him listen to this because one of the points is just don't set your eyes on something so, you know, fixed in your mind. It's great if you want to be an engineer. It's great if you want to do this. But there's a lot of things one can do. And uh, so engineering sounds good. MIT sounds great. But then, you know, I would love to to know, like, okay, what is the right age to for a young person? Because I think as parents, we influence our kids a lot. And we plan these things in them that of what they should be. And then they don't know how to trace back into their passion into it. I don't know if there's one universal age. We certainly know with some children, they have an innate preference for something. For me, it was STEM. My parents just saw that come out of me. I see the same thing in one of my nephews. He just loved mm -hmm. everything I love and all we have to do is encourage it, but we never imposed it on him. There are other people who might need a little more guidance and direction. But equally important is even if we see someone is interested in some direction, because of course, many children might take after their parents. I know one woman who went to a Ivy League university and became a doctor, just like her father. And then at some point in her 40s realized this is not the life she wanted, but she, I think, just felt this was the life laid out for her. This is what she's supposed to do and got stuck there. And of course, when you're a doctor in your 40s, it is a little hard to change. I talk about how you can pivot and change in the book. 
for doctors, they have a mentality. I've invested so much in med school, in residency. It's psychologically, I think, a little harder for some of them to change. So she felt a little trapped. But really, when it comes to encouraging particular disciplines, here's the key. We teach it the wrong way. We often say, do you want to be a doctor? Do you want to be an accountant? Do you want to be an artist? It's very binary. Do you want to do this or not? Instead, we should look at the particular tasks, the particular interests someone might have. Oh, someone is very social. She likes engaging with lots of people. Well, then a job where she's in a room by herself is probably not the right job. Someone who's introverted and says, I don't like new people. I don't like large crowds. A job where this person works by herself is probably the right job. So we look for these little components. We look for the attributes of what might align to our personalities and interests. And then we say, what job does ABC? There's probably more than one answer and start investigating those jobs. But when you align people to, I'm interested in these attributes, they're no longer wed to a single job or career. No, that's, uh, I totally agree with you on that one. It's, uh, it's, we focus more on the career rather on what kind of life we like to lead or what I, I, I did business and I tell people I can do the books, but I hate the accounting part of, of my job. You know, as a CEO, you have to, you have to familiarize yourself. I'm a people's person. I like to be selling. I like the, the interaction. So my days are better when I get to do that and not the other stuff, but I, but you can still do it. And I think that's what people have to realize. The fact that you don't do it doesn't mean you don't know how to do it or you're not good at it. It's just you, you thrive when you do other things that you are more aligned with. Exactly. And I talk about in the book, I've got the free questions on the website. These questions help you understand what it is that you like. And it's not simply saying, do I want a job that's nine to five versus more open, but questions about your lifestyle and questions about what you enjoy to find a career that fits into your needs. Oh, I think that uh, with a great resignation, I think you, 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 a lot of people should be visiting your website because I think that's exactly the stage where a lot of people are like, I, I, do I have to go back to the life I had before? I'm curious, what, what do you think? What's your theory on the great resignation uh, syndrome? Why are people not that willing to go back to their old jobs? People had a prior notion of, well, I guess I have to work to make money. And we've upended that in a few ways. First, the very nature of work that I don't necessarily have to be in the office. And so even to people whose jobs may have required that from surgeons to a restaurant waiter, obviously have to be there in person. They said, but other people don't have to be. I never realized that was an option. I just thought I chose the restaurant or the operating room as opposed to a desk. But I guess there was a fourth option, which is work from home. So first, we've changed what people have seen that they can do. Second, people really started asking themselves in the last year, what do I want to have life, right? This was almost that near-death experience when people have some major life-changing experience, they start to question their values and really say, time is precious, what do I want to do? At a macro level, we all have that. We recognized when we lost things, we recognized what was important to us and started to reevaluate. And so now we're looking for a job that can focus on what's important to us. It's not just about money anymore and recognizing that there are newer options. So I think the 
any individual may have had this at any point in her or his career, but that this happened to all of us at once globally has just created this groundswell that's causing the great resignation. Oh, and I think even we suffer, you know, in, in telecom and we cannot find people. I think overall it's a good thing that revisiting what you want to do. Um, if you are having doubts, use tools like the ones in your webpage or your book to say, am I really living the life I want to live? Because at the at the end of the day, you know, uh, even this podcast is, are, are you doing something that makes you tick? Are you passionate about what you're doing? And, and you say all options are on the table. And I think the pandemic gave people the opportunity to say, I just changed my job. Like now you're not going to be judged because the whole thing that happened was so traumatizing for everybody that even if you say, I just quit my job and I'm not working, no one is going to, you know, second guess you because the pandemic gave you the perfect excuse to do it. And if you think about this in a historical perspective, at the start of the 20th century, we had the labor movement where people started to say, enough is enough. There were safety issues, both just whether machines were ripping off arms, but also people working 12-hour days, six days a week. They said, we just can't take this. And that's effectively what's happening now. It's not no one's worried about losing arms. We're not quite working 12-hour days, six days a week, but it is almost a mental safety. And people saying, I am just showing up to work and it is draining me. It is hurting me. And it's not just me who feels this way. What I'm learning is everyone is feeling this way. And so we have effectively a second labor movement that is looking more at, I'm going to say mental health, that's that's maybe almost too narrow a focus. And it's not simply on mental health issues, but it's about, am I getting out of my job more than a paycheck? Am I getting a certain engagement and happiness and growth and other things that matter to me other than money? Wow, that's so good. I almost think you have a second book there or a third. I don't know how many you've written, but a second labor movement book. I think it, it, that's powerful. So going back to your book and the soft skills, I'm curious because this is not the first time we hear about this. I personally always complain about great candidates or people that work in my organization, but the lack initiative or the lack those soft skills that are sometimes called. Why do you think if most people in academia, they agree this is missing, you know, and, and kudos to MIT for developing it. Why do you think this is not being thought more in 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 universities, in school overall? Universities are unfortunately run by professors. Now, I like professors. I teach with them. They're wonderful people. But they are the wrong people to run universities from this perspective. Because when you think about what they know, they are deep experts in their particular area. So let's suppose I go to school and I want to study marketing. Well, what does that mean? There's a bunch of professors who have PhDs in marketing. These are the marketing experts. And I said, well, if you want to understand marketing, here's what we, the experts, think you need to know. There's a bunch of introductory classes. Then we have some mid-level classes to give you some breadth in different aspects of marketing. Then we want you to take some advanced classes, maybe in a particular topic or two. And if you do all this, we have determined that you are eligible for a degree, a bachelor's in marketing, and what does that bachelor say? It does not say you are a good marketer. It does not say you are a good employee. All it says is you have acquired this level of knowledge in marketing. 
because that's what the marketing PhDs, that's what they understand. Here's the whole body of knowledge and here's a sufficient level to get to this title, bachelor's in marketing. Now that was fine when you go back a hundred years, when you go back mid-century, corporations were basically these large hierarchies. We took the concept from the military and we had the structure and we were all just cogs in the machine. So with your new marketing degree, you'd go sit at your desk, a row of lots of other marketers, and your boss would come in and say, here's what I need you to work on. Come up with a slogan for this campaign. Say, yes, sir. And you do the job and then you bring it back to your boss's desk and say, here you go, sir, what next? And we just sat there and we did these little tasks like cogs in a machine. You didn't have to have other skills. You just needed to know the mechanics of marketing or accounting or chemistry or whatever you were working on. But as we evolved, a number of things happened. Corporations had massive layoffs in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and that gutted mill management. And we shifted into not simply hierarchical siloed teams, but multidisciplinary teams. We're also expecting people today to take initiative. Your boss doesn't necessarily know more than you do about your particular job. And so now we need you to take initiative, talk to other people in other disciplines with other skill sets. And that requires not just the mechanical skills of marketing or accounting or any other field, but these broad skills to engage. And unfortunately, the university system, it's slow. It's 900 years old, and so it moves slowly. And it's going to take probably another 30 years or so for it to catch up and really incorporate these skills. Yeah, and it's, uh, and it's scary because even young kids, you know, that you know what they're being taught. And like there's so many subjects or things that I think could be incorporated into the pencil at a very young age that could make the whole lot of difference, but that are not being thought. I interviewed someone at a point where he had in his resume, he spoke three languages and that we're an international company. So he had the bad luck that I speak for. And uh, and so I tried to test his knowledge. And basically it's me llamo X. My name is and so when I questioned, I said, listen, you have it in your resume that you speak. I said, oh, I'm a fast learner. <laughs> that was his answer. And, uh, but zero, like, um, double second guessing, like I'm doing something wrong. There's, there's something with the way we're uh, bringing up our, our, the new generations that they, it's a good thing that they feel that they can learn things fast, but at the same thing, they, it's a bad thing. My blog post that came out today actually talks about why just saying I'm a fast learner is not sufficient. <laughs> but I think, you know, we're seeing people, this mentality of fake it till you make it, which I despise, mm -hmm. is a prevalent mentality. And, oh, I'm going to put this on and, okay, you might catch that I don't really speak three languages, but the next person might not. And therefore, I'm just going to put it in. If one out of 20 companies doesn't test me, well, I get in. And then if they say, oh, you have to go meet some people in France. Okay, I'm going to think I can cram and learn French in the next week and do it. And I <laughs> yes, I think we do need to change that mentality. But it's a, it's a generational shift. It's a cultural shift that's going to take a little while to change. Yeah, and, I, and I'm sure I haven't read your book, but I'm sure that there is a bunch of skills in there that, you know, that people think I will get them the same way. Like I can, oh, if I want to be compassionate or if I want to be genuine, I can be it. And and they don't realize that people 
you know, if you're intuitive, you can you can skim through all the BS and realize that the person is really not being true to themselves. And here's the thing about these skills. You have to learn them in a very different way than we have been taught to learn. So consider the quadratic formula. At some point in our education, the teacher said, this is the quadratic formula. Here's how it works. We wrote it down. We memorized it. And whenever we see a quadratic equation, we know how to solve it. If you still remember how it works. <laughs> if 25 years hadn't passed. Or <laughs> but it was simple memorization. That's most of our education, certainly our primary and secondary education. And for many of us, even in college, it was memorizing and then regurgitating the knowledge. But the skills we talk about in the book, these skills are more akin to sports. Imagine if I said, oh, you're going to join our basketball team. So I'm going to send you to a two-day basketball training program. Great. You come back from our program. Okay, done. You're ready to lead our team. You're no more training, no more practice. You're good. You had two days of it. Isn't that sufficient? Right? And of course, you're, you're laughing at that, but that's what we do where I say, oh, guess what? Uh, you're getting promoted to manager. So you're one of the lucky ones. We're actually going to send you to some training. Most people get none. We're going to send you to a two-day training program. Okay, great. Done. Right? You had two days of training last year. What more do you need? In fact, yes. like sports where we say, well, once you learn a concept, you have to practice it. You might have drills. You might have scrimmage games. You might watch the tape to reflect. That's what we need to do with these skills. Now, it's trickier because I can't say, hey, everyone, I'm going to practice leading this afternoon. I'm going to try some things. Oh, oop, oh, wow, that was terrible. Okay, everyone, forget what I just did. <laughs> Pretend I didn't do that. Right? Doesn't happen. <laughs> so what we want to do is create peer learning groups. I recommend groups of about six to eight people, although I give ways where you can scale it up to larger sizes if you want. And in these groups, we come together. You want to take some content. Yes, you can use my book. I show you how you can chop up my book into different sections to apply to different skills you want to build. But if you don't want to use my book, use another book. I list a number of very good ones. Find your own. Use some articles, some video. Use a great podcast like this one. The point is everyone engages with that content, listens to that podcast episode, and then we come together to discuss it. And it's in that discussion that's where we begin to get to the richness of it. Because as we talk about communication, let's say, I'm going to share my thoughts on it, and I'm going to hear your thoughts. We'll hear someone else's. And you might say, hey, I have this challenge. I have to communicate this really important idea to my team next week. I'm thinking of doing it this way. What do you guys think? And then we give you our thoughts. That's our scrimmage. That's how I can practice communicating using your real situation as the guide. Or I can hear someone say, well, here's what I did before and what worked and what didn't. That's how we watch the tape. That's how we learn from each other. So by creating these peer learning groups, you get a regular cadence because you're probably going to be meeting every week or every two. So it's not that one and done training. And you're getting a richer experience using what's known as active learning. You also, if you do this at your company, for anyone who is a manager or in HR, if you do this at your company, you're creating more engaged employees. You are fostering internal networking because you ideally want to do this not with your direct teammates, but with people from different parts of the company. And you create a common language because now we can all refer back to a term from a book or a podcast that we've all heard and it helps foster communications as well. 
And this is all done for free, right? There's no cost unless maybe you buy a book. But again, you can use free content. And if your company doesn't do this, you can do it on your own. Create a local meetup group. Create people from different companies coming together to create these peer learning groups. So you can do it on your own. I'd recommend your company do it if they can. Otherwise, don't wait for your company to do it. Start this yourself. I think that's one of the best advice anybody had given in the podcast, because, you know, in a sense, it's when you think about mastermind groups, which is what a lot of the flashy term and a lot of people, and they want you to pay incredible amount of money to join and all these things. And what people don't realize is something as simple as what you explain that you can do with your friends, people that have similar also uh, taste. Like I, t I told someone the other day, I have a very good friend. We have very little in common, but we used to work a long time ago together. But what, some of my best conversations on the spiritual front are with him because we are we are aligned on, on the type of books we consume. So we have very little in common in most things, but then I connect with him in a way I don't connect with anybody else even people really close to me. So the connection and the bonding that you're talking about is there, you know, at your fingertips if you look for it. And so that that's great, great advice. And I'm curious because I'm a techie person and I read that your book has an app. So tell me about the, the app in your book. I think that sounds fascinating. One of the things that happens when you read a book like mine, you say, oh, there's lots of great advice. But then three weeks later, you forget 95% of it. I know I do this. We're all busy. We have other books, other things going on in our lives. My job is not to sell you a book. My job is to help you improve. Now, the book is one means of doing so, but I realized we can do even better by including an app. Now, this is a free app. It's available from the Android and iPhone stores, the Career Toolkit app, and it's linked from the website that we'll give later in the show. You can download this for free, and here's how it works. As long as you open it just once a month so that we know you're still active, you don't have to open it every day because I know you're not going to want to do that. Instead, you set a time when you want the tip to come up. So what I've done is I've gone through as if I took a highlighter to the book. I pulled out some of the key ideas, good quotes, key takeaways. That's all in the app. And so each day it's going to pop up at time you want. Let's say 9 a.m. when you first get into the office or start your job. We might not be going into the office these days. <laughs> There it is. It pops up one of those tips. And you go, oh, right. That was a really good point. Okay. Glad I remember it now. It helps keep it top of mind. It uses spaced repetition to reinforce the learning so you can remember it better and requires no effort on your part. It takes three seconds to look at and swipe it away. The other thing you can do is perhaps you're going into a negotiation. Say, like, oh, there were all those great tips in Mark's books, but I don't have time to go read that chapter again, or I forgot to bring the book with me. No problem. If you pull the app out, take the phone out of your pocket, open the app, you can go right into the negotiation tips and quickly flip through those to get a quick refresher right before you walk into that negotiation. So it can be used two ways, but both of them are designed to help you retain and use the information better, and it's completely free. I think that's brilliant, 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 and especially makes it even a better gift for a young person, you know, starting their, their career because, I mean, we know that younger people love apps. So it's good, you know, to have that reminder, that mindfulness moment to remember what's important. I, I am definitely downloading it. So thank you in advance. <laughs> 
So, Mark, as we head towards the end of the interview, I always give a, an open mic. Also, I know you're a speaker. I know you have so many, you know, engaging initiatives. Is there anything that excites you the most these days that you want to share with the audience? Well, certainly I've been doing a lot more speaking and I was very excited as my speaking got to be more in person. It was virtual for the first half of this year, started to go to more in-person events. Now, at the time of our recording, Omicron is coming out, the Omicron variant. So it's all TBD. That's what I'm hearing from the people I'm, I'm engaging with. Uh, but I'm looking forward to more events, hopefully many of them in person in the US, Europe, and elsewhere, because I just enjoy really being there with people and engaging and getting that feedback and real-time interaction at companies and at conferences. The other thing I'm working on, that app I created for my book, this can work for other types of content. So we're working on putting out a generalized version of it in 2022. So other authors can do something similar. So corporations that have training can do this with their training programs. We're even talking to some podcasters who want to provide ways to get highlights from their podcasts into the hands of their listeners. So basically, for anyone with content, we're creating this tool to help that content really stay top of mind in who their users, readers, and listeners are. Oh, I can see the tech in you speaking now, like the engineer and the, and the STEM professional. I think that's a fantastic idea. Um, we need to, we, I think there's an overflow of content, of great content these days, which is a good thing. Everybody's like writing, not everybody, but I see more people, you know, self-publishing books, doing podcasts like this. You know, you have a lot to choose from. So when you have a, a tool and tools that are able to streamline to the content and, and deliver what you need when you need it, I think it is very brilliant. And so the last question will be related. To, well, I don't know if the dancing is still what makes you tick. I always ask, what makes you tick? Besides everything you share, when you have to do something that really makes you remember your essence and who you are, what would that be? I love helping people with their professional efficacy. It's why I teach. It's why I've done many of the volunteer things over the years. It's why I wrote the book. It's why I do shows like this. I love helping people become more effective in their careers and get the most out of their lives. That's great. Well, I, I think that uh, you're living aligned with your purpose. And that's why, you know, I think uh, you shine in these interviews and, the, and your energy is uh, really good and contagious. And, and I'm glad you said yes to coming to Back to Basics. Thank you. And folks can go to my website, thecareertoolkitbook.com. There you can learn more about the book and touch with me, follow me on social media. You can also follow the blog posts I put out every week. I referenced that earlier. You can go to the app page and that's going to take you then to Apple or Android to download a free version of the app. There's also an entire resources page where I link to other books I recommend, free resources online. And there's a number of downloads, including the very first download is how to create this type of peer learning group at your organization. Completely free. And again, you don't have to use my book if you don't want to. All of this is available at thecareertoolkitbook.com. 
Wow. That, with that ending, you definitely have to do a, a radio show. I want to see that because <laughs> it sounded so good that I cannot even end my own podcast now making it sound that good. <laughs> Thank you, everybody, for following and for listening. If you love this podcast, please rate and review. And also make sure to check out the Back to Basics experience coming up in April, where we're going to be one week in Sicily in a beautiful transformational event. Check it out at LeticiaLatino.com. Thank you. And until the next time. You've been listening to Back to Basics. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook. If you haven't yet, subscribe, rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming platforms. This is the best gift you can give us. Join me next week for another Back to Basics conversation. And if you want to find out about other exciting things I'm working on, visit LeticiaLatino.com. Thank you and until the next time.